Are you developing a product you're looking to sell direct to consumer at the hand of technology? Have you always wondered how to set up a product-based subscription business? Are you looking for serious inspiration from a serial entrepreneur who's been there before? Stay tuned because today we have Marcia Kilgore on the show Talking Tech, founder of five successful global businesses. In a world that is run by Silicon Valley, how do we, women entrepreneurs, create businesses that change, inspire, and move this world for the better without being held back by the hurdles and obstacles the tech industry often throws our way? How do we create the impact we want and realize our full potential by leveraging technology to work for us, not against us? This show cuts through the status quo and is your guide to exploring technology confidently. Welcome to Cutting Through Tech. I'm your host, Maxine Kramer, and I'm on a mission to secure the digital future for us by doubling the number of female-founded tech businesses. I'm a software engineer, designer, coach, and consultant who's worked on apps that have had over a million downloads in a day and featured in Apple retail stores all across the world. I work with female founders, entrepreneurs just like you, to maximize their impact by creating world-class software-based businesses. I'm a woman, I'm in tech, and I'm the CEO of a business that is looking to make a mark. Stay tuned because on this show, technology becomes as simple as everyday English, removing the barriers so you can think, strategize, and execute like a female tech CEO. This is episode 26, The Netflix of Beauty. Serial entrepreneur Marcia Kilgore talks tech. Hello and welcome. I'm so glad you're able to join me in today's episode where I have a conversation with Marcia Kilgore. Now, Marcia is founder of Bliss, Soap and Glory, Fitflop, Soap Duper, and now Beauty Pie. Yeah, she's a serial entrepreneur. She has successfully sold some of her previous businesses like Bliss and Soap and Glory and is an expert in the beauty industry with over 30 years of experience. Today, however, we talk tech. In our conversation, we look at what technology has enabled for Beauty Pie with the ability to sell D2C or direct-to-consumer today. Also, Marcia shares unexpected challenges about raising funds, which, quite frankly, <laughs> I was blown away by. And, of course, there is some good conversation about your MVP and how to save money when you're just starting to invest in your technology. Marcia is an incredibly passionate founder and really relishes a close connection with her customer, which at the end of the day has been the driving force behind all of her business's decision-making and inevitable success. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'll see you at the tail end of it. Hi, Marcia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you today? I am great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Now, this is, for me personally, very exciting because I've been using Beauty Pie since the beginning, so it's fantastic to have you have you on here. 
And one of the things I love about your ventures in general, but especially this, is that it's such a unique mix of ingenious thoughts and really serving the female customer in something that I think they get very excited about and really want. So for those who are, are perhaps new to Beauty Pie and not sure what it is, would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? I would love to tell you about Beauty Pie. The idea behind it was to take the notion of a buyer's club, which is really huge in America. And I'm Canadian, but I watched America and lived there for a long time. And to take the idea of a buyer's club, but for luxury beauty, because there are so many women who spend so much money on their luxury beauty products. We all really love high quality, you know, high quality skincare, incredible shampoos and conditioners. Who doesn't love a beautiful fragrance? But in the end, what most women don't realize, and I know this having been in the beauty industry for 30 years, is that the markups are really egregious in luxury beauty and in beauty in general. If you buy, say, a 100-pound product, 90 pounds of that is markup between the retailer markups um, and then the celebrity marketing and middleman and distribution and sample charges and all of that. So you're paying £100 probably to get an £8 or £7 finished good product. And you know it, it doesn't seem like that's necessary anymore, especially in the world of D2C and tech-enabled ventures. It's something that if you can bring something direct to the customer without all of those middlemen and all of those layers that aren't relevant anymore, I just thought it would be so fun. Why should we pay so much? We're getting exactly the same product for probably a fifth of the price with Beauty Pie from exactly the same labs with often the same or better formulas than the luxury beauty companies that are mainstream offer. And it's giving a fairy tale, I think, to every beauty product lover. It's like letting them be that kid in the candy store, but surrounded by cosmetics and candles and all those things that women and and a lot of guys love. Definitely. I definitely feel that way every time I shop. So in that idea, right, so this came to you about when does this start, the, the concept of beauty pie? I thought of the idea for beauty pie over a few months. There were... A, a couple of different points of light. I always talk about coming up with a new idea if you're an entrepreneur as connecting the dots or putting the lights around your Christmas tree where as they all light up, you see the shape of the tree. And with entrepreneurialism, the more ideas that you have and the more pieces of information that kind of connect together, create a new shape. And that shape for me is a new business or a new idea. And there were several that led to the founding of Beauty Pie. One was me, and I've got a, a footwear business called FitFlop also. So one was me going to China. I was going to Dongguan for two or three weeks to work on a collection for FitFlop with the product development team. It was the winter. And I remember going to, through the Hong Kong airport, having realized that I forgot my moisturizer because on the plane over, I went to try and find moisturizer and I hadn't got it with me. And I remember going into one of the duty-free stores and going over to a shelf of one of the, uh, let's just say, more luxury Asian brands. And I had tried one of their products a couple of years prior because a PR had sent it to me. And I thought, well, this is a pretty good moisturizer. And it was something like $150 or $175. And I remember thinking to myself, who could afford it if I wanted to buy it? I, I know this probably costs six bucks to make max. I am not paying $150. I don't care if I'm going to be in a freezing cold factory and a cold hotel for three weeks without moisturizer I can't do it. And then I, as I walked away, I thought, if I'm not going to buy it, why should anyone have to pay that much? Why should 
anybody be paying that markup? It is ridiculous. So there was that moment. And then there was a moment where I was leaving one of the very best suppliers in Italy. Every year, they will do a kind of a week where they invite everybody in to, to look at all of their new formulations, which they will sell to me or to a Tom Ford or to a Laura Mercier or to a Charlotte Tilbury. They'll sell it to everybody. And they had invited me despite the fact that I didn't have a brand at that time. And I had this huge bag of samples over my shoulder, which is the funnest part, right? And I thought to myself, God, I have probably 4,000 euros of street value cosmetics in this bag over my arm. Oh my God, I just love my job. <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could bring all the women to this with me? If we could all come here and just shop out of the back door, that is a fairy tale. And so from then, it was, how do I do this? Who's done something like this in tech? What other membership services or subscriber services or platforms are available that allow people to shop kind of in an unbridled way? And that was the idea for Beauty Pie. Wow. Yeah, because you often compare Beauty Pie to the Netflix of beauty, which is obviously one of the big subscription services. And they they do a mix of getting other people's content on, but they've also obviously started making their own, which is what drives people there. Uh, And same with Beauty Pie, you've got your own formulations that are unique. Going from that idea to what you've now put into place, how was that process like? And you obviously were working on other brands as well, like Fitflop. So that has an e-commerce site and a platform, but Beauty Pie is fully direct to consumer. There's no retailers, no, you know, you're not passing on to other stores. There's no shops apart from the the brief pop-up before poor COVID uh, hit us all. So having that direct to consumer aspect in the in the concept, how did you go from concept to execution? It was tough, I have to say, going from concept to execution. Um just trying to figure out minimum order quantities and how many people would even understand this and how could we, of course, we still need to make a certain amount of money back per product because if we didn't, if it was unlimited, right, and people could just pay $10 and then buy everything, um, we would go bankrupt, of course. So we need to make sure that we have incoming uh, revenue every month that helps us pay for all of our overheads because we've got sourcing teams and we've got e-commerce teams and we've got art supply teams and customer service teams in the warehouse. And so it's, there's a huge staff that you have to build around this. And I think people don't necessarily see all of what goes on behind the scenes. It's quite complicated, even creating just a particular product. Even if you are buying an off-the-shelf luxury, let's just say our eyeshadow sticks, for instance, um, which are incredible, are pretty much off-the-shelf from one supplier in Italy and a lot of different brands buy that same eyeshadow stick. And they do have a library of colors that are available to everybody, but then you can mix and match your own. So you may buy, you know, that one eyeshadow stick, but then you have to figure out which packaging you want that eyeshadow stick in because they can do, of course, different widths and different circumferences. And then you have to test that eyeshadow stick in that particular packaging. So there's a lot that goes into product but you have to test it for shipping to make sure that when you ship it and it shakes back and forth it doesn't fall out of the packaging you have to test it to make sure when you roll it up when you use it on your eye it doesn't bend in that packaging it doesn't melt when it ships it's stable in the packaging for you know two-year period of time but there are so many steps to product development so one part of the complication of actually building it and you know that process was 
figuring out which products did we want to start with? What did we then want to follow up with? What kind of membership model would work for us in terms of that people would understand, but then people would understand also that it can't just be an unlimited amount of stuff that you buy. Because of course, at our prices, which are so low compared to normal prices, you could have people who, if there was an unlimited you know, amount that you could buy, would just start selling it on eBay. And if you've got a bunch of people selling it on eBay, then why would anybody join? It sort of usurps your whole membership model. So you have to kind of think of, well, what did someone like Netflix put in place? Or what did Spotify put in place so that people could stream a lot, but we're also limited. For them, they have, I think, a certain number of devices that you can have your product on. And I think on Netflix, you can also download certain things. But And on Spotify also, certain right, certain um, memberships allow you to download and actually have it on your device when you're not streaming it and other ones don't. So our idea was that you would be able to buy for your membership a certain amount of product each month. And really what that membership is, is like a 10% margin when you run a cosmetics business the normal way. So if I, for instance, had a brand and I was selling it to Sephora, I would take my $2 shower gel and I would sell it to them and they would probably sell it for 20, right? But I would be then giving them 12 at least. So their margin would be 12 out of that 20. And then we were going to, you know, back up from there. And what I found at the very beginning and, and through all of my years of running cosmetics brands is that if you ended up making a 10% profit, that was good. So for any cosmetics business to make 10% profit, they had to mark their product up 10 times to retail and then pay all of those additional charges, retailers, marketing, samples, etc. And you'd end up making 10%. So on my $2 shower gel, I would make $2, but Sephora would make 12 and then you back out of it all the other costs that you've got. And that would be considered good. And I thought, okay, there is something terribly wrong with this, that women and men have to pay 10 times as much as a product really costs to make in order for the business to make 100% or $2 on a $2 product. But the customer is paying 20. So it was all about figuring out, okay, how do we get that $2 without all of that markup? And so the idea of this monthly membership where you had a limit that had a relevance to how much you were paying, that's how we came up with it. You're left basically then with the membership fee, which is actually not that high. So £10 allows you to buy £100 worth of product. You wouldn't be spending the £100, you would be spending the, the factory cost, but in terms of value. So the, the subscription fee basically runs the business, allows you to hire the staff and the team that you need um, and sort the logistics, not of the product, but of running the business. I mean, let's just say not, not yet. <laughs> Roughly. Yes. <laughs> so there are investors involved as well. Well, I was a big investor. So of course, I mean, I always start all of my businesses myself. And I've been lucky enough and worked hard enough over the past 25 years to uh, have quite a lot of successful businesses. So I had Bliss, which I sold to LVMH. And then I had Soap and Glory, which I sold to Booth Walgreens. I've got Fitflop, which is sold in 65 countries. And we sell a tremendous number of shoes and is super, you know, COVID has been difficult, let's just say, but it is otherwise 
you know, a very successful brand. So lucky with that one. Um, Super Duper, which is just getting going. And then took a, a lot of the earnings that I had made from other businesses and put them into Beauty Pie because I just thought this could be so amazing for everyone. And once there's something, you know, that really improves the customer's life, it wins. So if it's better and it improves her life and she opts for it over everything else, of course, it's going to win as a business model. So I was really happy to take, to do all of that first, I think it was three and a half years of investing myself. Um, about, I'd say about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, I found that it was super hard to get the tech talent that seems to be in this venture capital or private equity bubble. It was hard to hire people from inside that bubble to come outside of the bubble. I interviewed quite a lot of people because I was looking for, you know, different, as you get bigger, of course, right? You you need a CMO who really understands performance marketing, for instance, or I was looking for a COO who really understood tech and understood direct-to-consumer and growth modeling and all that kind of stuff. And I probably, first, I wouldn't find those people. I did interview a few people from Amazon, et cetera. But because we weren't backed by a venture capital fund, they weren't interested necessarily. That was always the last question. So are you VC backed or are you going to get venture capital? And my question or my answer was always no. <laughs> We're, I'm funding it myself. And I would usually lose them at that point. And so we would get people down to the last interview where I thought, okay, I love this person. This person is fantastic. They're really smart. I know I can work with them. They're driven. They understand, like they get it. Because, you know, when you get somebody with the eyes light up, especially with PewDiePie and someone who's really passionate about it, but very often they want to have that venture capital, uh, I guess, momentum, which people will see it as venture capital momentum behind it. So I thought I give up. It had literally, I've been interviewing for about a year. And so I put together my very first VC deck, <laughs> which was quite funny because I didn't have any clue what I was doing because I'd never had an investment before from anyone. Uh, like not a bank, nothing. And I went out, of course, we had had several hundred VCs connect with me over the previous couple of years that we've been running Beauty Pie. So I had a list of people and I just went out and met about seven uh, because there are so many, you know, it was, now this was another interesting one. They will say, you know, there's not enough women in tech or uh, women don't get very much of the, you know, there aren't enough women investors who are getting the good deals in venture capital. Since it wasn't my, you know, area previously, I kind of didn't, look that far and wide at what was going on. So I made sure that in those seven, four of them were women, you know, four groups of women and three, I guess, men where there were also women on the teams. Because uh, of course, most of them are mixed at, at the time. And normally in a meeting with me, they will make sure that there is a woman who is in some position of power at the firm there. And literally all three men wanted in and all four women didn't. <laughs> That is so intriguing because you, you hear a lot about Glossier and how it was very difficult for Emily to get funding initially as well, because indeed a lot of men at the time didn't understand the concept and why women who are the biggest you know, consumer group would buy into that. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think this happened? I found it really surprising that the women didn't understand it right away. 
And I've learned, you know, quite a lot in terms of what's important in modeling a direct-to-consumer business. Of course, I come from make it incredible and she will be your customer for a long time. And I actually look at things that way. I don't, I never looked at, oh, what's our lifetime value versus our cost of acquisition. I had no idea about these numbers. I just thought, come on, I'm going to bring all this stuff, but out of the back door of these labs and factories, all the best ones in the world, who wouldn't? And once you do that, why on earth would you ever go back to paying retail? I mean, that's kind of how I look at it. And it's like, okay, what do I need? I need to try and make that 10% some other way without all of the irrelevant stuff. And so for me, very big picture, that's it. I currently mentor for Future Startup Now founders who are a wonderful bunch. There's a young cohort that um, is just starting with their tech businesses. And one of the things I talk about the most is making a business viable. Now that can take a few years, but it is so important to think about it, especially in tech. It often seems to be an afterthought. Get the customers and the rest will come. And in that get the customers, you get your customer acquisition costs and lifetime value. What is so interesting is that here you are, you show up with great industry connections, a proven plan, people who are already buying, which most people who start pitching don't actually have that many customers yet. And yet there was a question around investment. So I find that really intriguing. I don't know. I think maybe because it's so disruptive, because people couldn't imagine that you can actually get fantastic beauty products this inexpensively then maybe that was it. Maybe they should have just ordered some stuff for themselves because that was last year. We were, you know, we probably already had 200, 300 products. So it wasn't like we were just, at the very beginning, we we had 70 SKUs, which was minimal. But of course you have to buy 5,000 of each SKU. And so there was a huge, you know, there was a, sort of this huge leap off a cliff. I'm going to own like 350,000 units of whatever. And I don't even have a customer yet. And that's quite scary. Um, but I really believe that because it was so much better and it was so exciting for women, because I think everybody goes through a period in their teens, at least thinking, I want to work in cosmetics. Oh, I wish I could work in cosmetics, right? I wish I could do that because it seems to be so fun. So this kind of takes you back to, <gasps> I have that kind of access where I can kind of go crazy and it's not expensive. And even now, you know, in the middle of COVID, so many people have income insecurity, but you can still afford a gorgeous little pink box of stuff arriving at your door. And it's maybe going to be 50 quid altogether with your membership and whatever you bought. And that's pretty lovely that we can be doing that for people, you know, during stressful times. Yeah, it's funny how that works. It's one of the the luxuries and fun things that you do for yourself. So even in these times, I think there's even if you look back in war times, women still wore makeup a lot because it puts your face on for the day to like, you know, deal with the day. So it's got a, a really rich history. Um, but yeah, backtracking for a second, because I had a, uh, one thing I really wanted to know was in all of this and in your overheads, in your margin, how did you get the tech sorted? Because it's notoriously expensive and can be notoriously challenging. You're working on formulations, you're working on packaging, but then how did the tech fit in? Did you get an agency involved? Did you hire people for it? When we started to put our tech together, we looked at a bunch of different platforms that were readily available and which one might suit us just from, of course, we we thought even from the beginning that of course this is gonna be 
launching in America or launching in the United, or the United Kingdom first and then America. And then, of course, we're going to want to roll out to the entire world. And this is where there was that break uh, in logic that took place because we we bought this huge platform that would allow us to really expand all over the world. And then for some reason, the tech agency wasn't briefed on making sure that we could add new territories easily. And fortunately, it hasn't turned out to be an, the best tech choice for us. And we're going to be replatforming. Was it expensive? Yes. Did I spend a lot of money on it? Yes. Am I really lucky that I sold my last business for quite a lot and had that money to put into it? I certainly am. Um, and I think that, you know, at the beginning of any tech venture, tech is, is certainly expensive, although there are, there are different platforms like a Shopify, right? Or other platforms that you can just plug and play, which are a lot less expensive than what we had to do because we have this subscription business with limits and points. And it's almost, you have to build onto that basic backend that is running your merchandising, your inventory, your, all of your logistics. We actually, and this is part of that, um, the members pricing is dynamic. I'm sure you've seen that because you're very well informed. So when a, when an invoice comes in to us, it actually feeds those numbers through into the system. So if we have a larger, a larger uh, shipment of something, something's really, really popular, we can order more. There are economies of scale, right? So a 5,000 might be the minimum quantity, but if we order maybe 25,000 of something, that means we'll get a really good price break on that item. Above 25,000, probably not that much of a difference, but if we can get up to 25,000 of everything, then costs drop really dramatically. And it drops as that particular shipment hits the warehouse, it will then feed into the system. And that's what people will start paying rather than the old price, which it, that also took a lot of programming, I suppose. And then you think, well, is that really important? You know, should we have, should we have worried so much about that? Or should we have just manually entered it? Because we really did want it to be like a buyer's club where in real time, people would be getting those same savings that we were getting from the labs. But is it really that important to somebody buying an eyeshadow? Maybe not. So I think if I was to start again, because we just wanted to be so transparent and have it all running in the back end, and the shipments would come in and the invoice would be processed through NetSuite. NetSuite plugged into the back end of whatever system we had. And then those prices would feed through and then customers would benefit from the lower prices because of the scale of the club. And then they would realize, wow, this is really great. The bigger we are, the more we save and let me send all my friends. But I don't know how much she actually thinks about that or if we thought that was important to her. So I would say for anybody starting out, really question whether your customer cares about the back end as much as you care about it. For me, it was so important to be able to offer this kind of value by scale. And that was the whole go in the back door. Let's all, as beauty lovers who don't want to pay through the nose anymore, let's all be just as powerful as one of the big cosmetics companies buying in volume. And then we can all get these prices together. But whether she cares about how we do it as much as that she gets great prices, I'm not sure. And that has cost me a lot of money in investment, which I don't know I would do again if I knew better. So maybe sense checking your, does anyone care? Like the so what question for each part of your equation before you invest a lot in tech. I think that would be some advice that I would give somebody. Because that's actually a very interesting point. One of the things that 
I talk a lot about is testing with users and customers. And of course, you do that. You are very close to the customer. Out of founders that I have seen on, you know, and know, I think you're one of the closest. You're always right in there with Instagram chatting to everyone. And that's very much product formulation, the good in itself that people buy. So was there a, a testing strategy around the platform or the concept and the, the way that they would acquire it? Because tech enables people to get their hands on it. So it's more a delivery mechanism than the idea in itself. But was there a phase of testing for that? We are constantly going through user testing and idea testing now and probably always will in the future. I think it's so important to see how people navigate through your site. Ours is a little complicated still, and we're still working on it. And that's four years later, right? Or three and a half years later. So you just think, okay, you see that this is a marathon and it's not a sprint. You're never going to quite get it right. You're always going to have to keep honing and also looking at what your prospect, you know, that customer prospect, how she's interacting with it, what she understands and she doesn't understand, trying to make things clearer for her. Um, watching people navigating through in hot jar and things like that to see where you might be losing them and where it might not be as clear to them as it is to you. All of that's super important. Now, of course, if you're coming up with something that is really disruptive, you may not have the ability to do that because you don't want anyone to know what you're doing before you launch. So you have to be really careful. We couldn't go out there and, yeah, we didn't tell anyone yeah, we told no one what we were doing until we launched because, as well, the suppliers, right? We knew that there would be a tremendous amount of pressure on the suppliers from the mainstream luxury beauty brands once they found out what we were doing. Because the beauty industry, it's like stripping all their clothes off and going, hmm, this is not, you know, this isn't right anymore. And it's not fair to the customer to be charging this much for something that costs that much. Even after we had launched, I went and visited most of the beauty editors at, at the magazines, you know, in New York and in, in London, and they couldn't even believe how much things really cost to make, right? They're, they're equally sucked in um, and brainwashed like we all have been for so many years. And so for us, we were really concerned that once we introduced Beauty Pie to the world and people understood, especially those in the industry, that we were going to lay bare the facts of what markups were like, we thought that some of the suppliers might stop supplying us. So we had to buy in advance a lot of inventory to ensure that if they said, hey, we're not going to give you this product anymore, we had enough time to go to the next supplier, which would be often a 12 to 18 month lead time on any product that you're developing and develop new things back out so we wouldn't run out of inventory. It was actually very risky because you you just don't know the pressure from all of the other big customers for those labs is going to cause them to stop supplying for you. When you look online now, entrepreneurship, it no one says it's easy, right? Everyone says it's hard, but the, the sheer amount of logistics involved in trying to figure every angle and every aspect out of your business and switching between big picture thinking and micromanaging every detail is a really big thing. So thank you so much for taking us on this whirlwind tour <laughs> behind the scenes of Beauty Pie and everything that's involved. You know, you've worked on lots of businesses. We've touched on that. My final question is, right, because we go from venture to venture, from job to job, idea to idea. But the skills we build in each 
project, they stay with us. If you had to think of three skills that you've developed across all of your businesses that you feel have made you be able to do what you're doing today, what would they be? Okay. The three skills I rely on really deeply that I've developed over you know, many years of being an entrepreneur, one would have to be, and you may say this is not a skill, but it's optimism. It's a skill. And you have to learn as an entrepreneur, anybody who wants to be able to get up in the morning and feel excited about what they're about to go and tackle, you have to learn how to be optimistic about it. You have to learn how to create hope and look at, let me find another idea that will give me hope when I'm having a really hard time getting through X, Y, or Z. And it is a skill just to be grateful and optimistic. You have to have a toolkit that you use that you pull out every day or in those times where it is more difficult or you might be exhausted or you just feel like you're beaten to be able to turn around and be optimistic the next day. I think that's a a huge skill. There's so much literature also on, on how to create that and how to create gratitude for yourself and all those things. But I think it's probably number one. Number two is probably microtasking. Now they talk about multitasking, but of course, there's now also a lot of research that there's no such thing as multitasking, that you're actually doing one task for a short period of time, and then you're quickly switching to another task, and you're never really doing two tasks at the same time. Your brain is going like this, like you're you're chopping. And it's really important for me, anyway, to be able to gather information from so many different sources in order to have the right information that I need to make a large decision. And that requires me to be able to skip from one thing to the next and feed on all of these different types of food to be able to then put a meal together. And if I wasn't able to switch gears really quickly, most of the time or when necessary, I wouldn't be able to have that the broad insight that is needed in order to make decisions that uh, are hopefully anyway, the right decisions. So far, so good because I've made it, you know, pretty far um, on a lot of different, a lot of different ventures. But I think microtasking is something that you have to learn how to do, how to, maybe it's by keeping a list and you always know that you go back to that list and you have to finish the top three things on that list. But at the same time, you have to gather information from so many different places because if you're in a bubble, you're going to do so many things that are out of context or irrelevant or focus on the wrong things. So staying really open, I think, is is very important. And, oh gosh, my last skill, I think, is empathy. And that is constantly trying to be able to, no matter what I'm doing or what I'm responsible for, being able to put myself in a customer's shoes, someone who has a complaint or a difficulty, and understanding how frustrating that might be. When you talk about seeing me on social media all the time, it's me. I, it drives me crazy when people have not received their Pi Day email. And I just can't understand why that's happening. So I, I can understand how frustrating that might be because people get very excited about things and then they feel left out and no one wants to be left out. So I take you know these small things very seriously because I know it's serious to a customer and how would I want to be treated, right? And so... I'm always trying to think about either from an employee perspective or from a partner perspective, or even now that we have investors and investor perspective, how would I want to be treated? What would I want to know? And how would I want to be communicated with? And so I think it's important, no matter where you are in the food chain of your business or your life, that empathy and situational empathy is a skill that you develop so that you can always, I think you'll succeed faster really being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much. Any last things you'd like to share? You know, join Beauty Pie. <laughs> Obviously, I can attest they are fantastic products. But then again, I am a self-obsessed beauty geek. That was the name of my very first app. Um, that's a whole nother story for another time. I read about that. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Marcia, for joining us today and, and giving us some of your, your time. And uh, yeah. It's my pleasure. Thank you for making it interesting. Well, ladies, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was a joy for me to talk to Marcia and record it for you. And what were your biggest takeaways from this? Anything that resonated for you at the stage that you're at in your business? Let me know. Tweet me on at Menenia or send me an email. I do love hearing from you. So one thing that came up in the interview was how challenging the assumptions that you have of your customer and their needs from technology as you're developing can really have an impact on your business. If you do not yet have the cash reserve that Marcia has been very skilled to grow and want to invest your money wisely as you build out your MVP, I've got an exciting new tool for you. I've developed a simple free assessment that can help you figure out where your blind spots are currently in this MVP process and what an optimal next step for you might look like. If this sounds like you, head over to mvpscorecard.com to get your results. Next week, I take you behind the scenes of an article I recently wrote for Startup Magazine, who have a brilliant podcast, by the way, Serial Entrepreneur, as in your breakfast. And in there, I spoke about the challenges of creating a tech business, what those inflection points often are and how to beat those odds and come out of it on the other end. So stay tuned for that next week. For now, this is what I've had for you today. If you're a fan of gorgeous beauty products, Marcia has left you a code in the show notes if you're interested in Beauty Pie. Until next time, have a wonderful day. See you.